0: CBCC episode 20, my realization of the day. Are all horror musicals horny, or is that just me? Like, through this entire month, I feel like every movie I've watched, it's just been a whole bunch of people trying to fuck each other. Is it because musicals are inherently tied to queer culture? Or maybe it's just that musicals with horror elements are extra horny. Why? Because horror is a sexy genre. Welcome to the Bloody Blunt Cinema Club. I You remember the 21st night of September? Love was changing the minds of pretenders while chasing the clouds away. Are you guys sick of me singing that song? I'm not. That's the whole reason I wanted to do the horror musicals in September, it just worked out so perfectly. And we still got another week of it here in Horror Musicals Month. Hello, hello. My name is Devon Taylor. I am your host, a.k.a. Jesus, a.k.a. Bloody Blunt, a.k.a. Kraken, the podcast producer of Paradise. We are doing another episode of the Bloody Blunt Cinema Club. And I just realized that this is the 20th episode. Holy shit. I'm like super happy about that, that I actually made it. Uh, not, not that I made it to 20. Um, it's funny that I made it to 20 this fast because I've done so many like bonus episodes here and there, but, uh, damn 20 episodes already of the Blade Blunt Cinema Club. And I have been having so much fun doing it. Like if it was not for this podcast, I would have went crazy already during the whole quarantine during the epidemic going on right now. I would have been one of those fucking people that would've been just going crazy, banging their heads against the walls, complaining about how bored they are, but because I was able to do this, it also like sparked my creativity in other areas and I was able to start working on screenplays and I was able to start working on music videos and doing other things like that because, you know, that's just how creativity works, you know, one thing will kind of influence the other and vice versa. And, you know, it's not that this podcast has been like, I mean, it's very important to me, it really is, but it is still in the early stages and our audience is still very young, but it has really been a uh, big deal to me for those of you who have been listening to the podcast so far. Like, thank you so much if you are one of the ones that have left a five-star review on iTunes, which I would greatly appreciate. Or if you've been, you know, liking and retweeting the tweets that I put out about the podcast, make sure you guys are following Bloody Blunt CC on Twitter and Instagram. That's the podcast page. And then my personal page is underscore daddy disco, which is where I still post most of the Bloody Blunt Cinema Club stuff anyways, just because I have more followers on that account. But if you have been one of the ones that have been helping me like spread the podcast around, if you have guested on the show, an extra thank you to you as well, because you guys have made uh, the show super fun so far. Like In 20 episodes, I've had some great guests on. I've gotten to talk to directors about their film. Um, I've done a franchise recap I mean, it has been so much fun. We've talked about so many movies and that will only add after this episode because we're talking about a shit ton of movies today. It is a horror musical medley today. So I think in 20 episodes we've covered... Uh, I know over 30 because I mean, we always do, you know, a minimum of one movie, obviously, but a lot of the times it's two, sometimes it's three. You never know what you're going to get here on the podcast. So, 32 films has a recording, and then after this, it'll be 36 films, 36 films in 20 episodes. It has been so fun and. I am excited to continue the podcast. I hope it grows more. I'm excited about the stuff that I'm going to be doing with the YouTube channel as well. Um, I have a new editorial column coming out soon with Nightmare on Film Street, where I'm pairing movies with Weed, doing what I do best. So I'm very excited for the future. So hopefully in these next few months, especially with, you know, October coming around, that's pretty much sweeps week If you are a horror creator of any sort. I mean, really, it started in September, but October, this is like the prime time. So I have some super fun episodes planned for October. I'm very excited about the guests that we have and the movies that we're talking about. October, it will be all movies set on or around Halloween, of course. You know, we're going full spooky season with it. Got some fun guests in there and we are going to have a good time this October. So once again, guys, thank you so much to everyone that has been listening and enjoying the podcast and making it is what it is, and just continue to do what you're doing. Be awesome people, like and retweet things, write a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you haven't, I would greatly appreciate that. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get into some horror musicals. Week four, here we go. So my original plan was I was going to watch a bunch of movies. I was going to try and watch like seven or eight, and then I was going to put them in a bucket or something and then draw them out randomly and do it that way. However, I did not have the time to watch as many horror musicals this week as I would like. Um, I mean, I've watched so many movies in the past week, just not even podcast stuff. Um, just movies in general, because that's what I do, and I try to split my time between, you know, watching stuff with the podcast and just uh, watching things that I want to watch. So I did not get to watch as many as I wanted. Um, I did not get to Phantom of the Opera. I thought I was gonna get to it. I tried to, but I will give an obligatory shout out. Because, one, it was me watching Maggie's video of her singing to Phantom of the Opera that spawned this idea to begin with. So I was going to make sure I covered that film, but I didn't have the chance to. And it's, like, really long, so it's kind of hard to, like, fit into the schedule, you know? So I did re-listen to the soundtrack as I was uh, going through the line to get COVID testing, uh, which you guys should do regularly if you are, you know, out and about doing things. See, that's the thing with this whole epidemic. It's okay to be out doing things as long as you're smart about it. Wear your mask. Get tested regularly. Fuck! Sorry, I got sidetracked there for a second. But anyways, um, obligatory shout-out to Fam of the Opera, Andrew Lloyd Webber. Um, I did listen to the soundtrack, and and that's pretty much the best part of the movie. I mean, cuz I haven't watched it in a while and I do enjoy like the lavish sets and how like big and grandiose it is, but I also remember like the stuff in between the music being kind of boring, so I wasn't as motivated to like get it in, but I did revisit the the music, which is the important part anyways. You can listen to the music and that tells you all you need to know about family the Opera anyways. And I do really appreciate what Andrew Lloyd Webber and company did with like pretty much using an organ as a synth and creating like gothic new wave music for, for the movie. I think it's really great. I did not know it was like Emmy Rossum or I, because I didn't start watching Shameless until like a few years ago. So I didn't know Emmy Rossum played uh, Christy or Christine, whatever her name is in the movie. And, uh, damn, she's got some fucking singing chops. I didn't know before Shameless that she, like, had a singing background and all that jazz. And fucking, but it just, like, cracks me up that that's Gerard Butler. Gerard Butler, of all people to do Phantom of the Opera, Gerard Butler. But it he somehow works. Some people don't like his voice. I do. I think his voice works for the role and for the movie itself. Um... And then I like always forget that Patrick Wilson is in that movie. So I wish I would have revisited it before I started recording, but there's only so much time in the day. So I did watch a few other movies. I didn't watch seven or eight like I planned, I just watched four. So we're just going to talk about all four. This will be the first time on the podcast we've talked four movies, and I'm not going to go into super detail on each one, because then this episode would be way too long, so I'm just going to, you know, highlight the things I liked about it, what I thought, rewatching watching them. Um, the first movie that we're talking about, or actually, it's two movies that I've seen before, but like only once, and then it was two movies I haven't seen at all, and so we're just going to go through it in the year, uh, we're going to go through and order the years that they came out. So, the first movie that I will talk about was a first-time watch. It's a movie that people have been telling me to watch for years. So many people that I talk to, people have even asked me on the podcast if I've seen this movie. I think it was BJ asked it way back in episode 4 or 5, whichever episode that was. I'm pretty sure she asked me if I'd seen it, and then Maggie, um, who was on last week... She's asked me multiple times. She's like, Have you seen Family of the Paradise? Like, oh my God, this is a movie for you. And so I watched Family of the Paradise, released in 1974, directed by Mr. Brian De Palma. Brian De Palma has one of the most like fascinatingly bizarre like filmographies. I mean, he's an all timer for sure, but I mean, just his, but his different hits that he has from. Dressed to Kill, to Scarface, and the Untouchables, of course, and then, but also Mission Impossible, and then movies like uh, cult movies like Body Double and Carlito's Way, and then uh, Femme Fatale that he did early, in the early 2000s. Even that one is kind of interesting. He has just had such a interesting career that has spanned literally every genre, like he's done it all and then but the fact that he did this movie so early in his career is really fascinating to me that i mean this was only like his like fifth movie i think and for him to do a weird horror musical a rock musical at that as well it's very it's very very interesting so it pulls inspiration from um different works of european literature such as of course the Fama, of the opera but also the picture of Dorian Gray and Faust, which is name-dropped all over the movie as well. So, Fam of the Paradise, if you have not seen it, is about a guy named Winslow who writes this crazy music um, for a woman that he loves so that she will sing it. He writes this uh, cantata. And he plays it. He sneaks into Paradise, which is ran by Swan. Swan is this fucking crazy music producer. He produces everyone. Um, He's the tastemaker. Everyone wants to sing for him. Everyone wants to present their music to him. They want to be represented by him. All the women want to fuck him, of course. And he has this very weird presence. And, like, I mean, he feels like a cult leader, which, you know, I'm into. I mean, I'm into. Cult leaders in movies. Not cult leaders in real life. Just for clarification there. But um, played by Paul Williams. Paul Williams kills it here. As fucking Swan. And Winslow is played by William Finley. And Jessica Harper is also in this movie. As Phoenix. Which is the gal that Winslow loves. He he wants to write this music for. And he wants her to sing it specifically. And he's super crazy about this music. And who sings it. And um, Swan initially steals it from him, okay, and then, so the thing with this movie is, our man Winslow, he goes through some shit in this movie, like, and that's, like, the whole movie is, like, a revenge movie, I guess, but it's also, like, this, like, statement on, you know, commercialism and selling out and things like that, and... And also in artistry in general, like artistry and the ethics that come within, um, artistry. And it's, I don't, it's like, I don't, he, Brian De Palma like punishes the protagonist so much, but he never really gives a reason to. And then it's like, he fucking goes through shit and then Winslow has the opportunity to like take his revenge after swan like gets caught and then so swan's like aha you caught me but look at you now you're dead and blah blah blah, so yeah i'll make your music for you but you can't sing anymore so now i'll make it so you can sing so then he fucking seals him up in a room so he can like write more music for swan and swan's like yeah no i'm gonna give you credit this time and we're partners so then swan gets him to sign a contract over to him selling his soul to fucking swan And he's fucking stuck in this room, and then he only wants Phoenix to sing it, but Swan wants other people to sing it. So then um, Winslow, who is now the Phoenix after he's been disfigured, and he wears a costume from the show that is going to be going on here at Paradise. And so he fucking gets his music stolen from him first. Oh, and then so he gets his music stolen from him. And then Swan gets cops to plant drugs on him after he throws him out. Gets him thrown in fucking prison. A prison where they take his teeth out. They remove Winslow's teeth. An innocent man. They remove his teeth. They do give him a shiny silver grill, which is super fun um, because it's a great look. Like, um, Winslow, after he goes through his transformation, oh, man, he is like completely different, and it's pretty wild. So, he gets sent to fucking prison, loses his teeth, escapes prison, and then, like, he comes after Swan, but then that's when... And then he fucking gets his head pressed in a record press at Paradise with his own record that doesn't have his name on it. Like, the layer upon layer of punishment, so I'm like... I was just, like, confused the whole time, going, like, what did Winslow do to deserve all this? Or what did... Because it's like he goes through all of this stuff, but then what does he gain from going through this experience? Except for, spoiler alert, for a very, very old movie. Fucking Winslow dies at the end. So what did he go through this movie for? Or is it, or was it the statement of, because by the end of this movie, when shit has gone absolutely batshit insane, I guess now the the fucking work lives on, you know, as this fucking work of art and this moment in pop culture because like that was what swan was all about like he was ready to fucking marry phoenix on live tv for the ratings and then he was gonna assassinate her so he was (laughs) all for ratings and shit and swan of course turns out that he made a deal with the devil to stay forever young and to be this mega producer and all he has to do is get people to keep signing their souls over to him and um, make sure that the video that he recorded this exchange on, because Swan is obsessed with um, recording everything, I mean, I hate to be that guy, just like this is a side note, I hate to be that guy, but Fama the Paradise would make a, such a weird, interesting movie now with what it means, like with the state of pop culture and music and consumerism and commercialism, and fucking TV and social media and all that shit, imagine what Phantom of the Paradise would look like now. I'm not saying it needs to be remade. I'm just saying it. if it got remade, I would not be upset. Because this movie was uh, received pretty poorly when it came out. It didn't make money either. and But it became a cult film over the years, obviously. And... And it lives on as this cult movie and it and it really is a great movie. So overall, like because even though I do have some issues with like the characters or the way that De Palma treats the characters, because like Phoenix, she also doesn't really get it too well either. Like she's just like kind of passed around like an object. She never really has any agency. And at the end, she is, like, now forced to just, like, keep performing this because it's worth it to her. So, I mean, is it supposed to be just saying, like, everyone, like, like I mean, these are the movies that I love, you know? I love movies that explore these themes of, like, fame and success. You know, I obviously covered The Neon Demon and Starry Eyes. So, like, movies like that that explore these themes, I love that kind of stuff. But, it's like, even in the twisted way, those characters in the Neon Demon and Starry Eyes, they still eventually got what they wanted. Versus, I mean, I guess Phoenix got what she wanted, and the work is huge and famous, so I guess Winslow got what he wanted in that aspect. But it's, it's even more bittersweet than those movies are, because in those movies, I like the idea... Of giving into temptation versus I feel like in Phantom of the Paradise, Winslow and Phoenix were more just like manipulated and toyed with the entire time. So it's like I feel like if they had more control over the outcome, then I would have resonated with it a little bit more. So that's one thing that I'd been thinking about since I watched the movie. However, on the the musical aspect, this movie is fucking fun. Like, it's this, like, fucking blend of, like, surf rock and, like, fucking, like, 50s rock nostalgia. But then, with a modernness to it that, I like, would eventually be fucking, like, New Wave. But this was in 1974, so did Brian De Palma invent New Wave? I don't know. That's up for debate. But the music is really fun. Um, I love the opening song, Goodbye, Eddie, Goodbye, by the Juicy Fruits. I love the recurring gag that the Juicy Fruits like keep getting rebranded throughout the movie as different acts because and they sing other people's music because it doesn't matter. They're just talented and they're a face, you know, and they're just a canvas for product for Swan, you know. So it's really interesting. Um, The main song Faust, which we hear like three or four times throughout this movie, is not the best it's not the best song that I'd like to hear three or four times throughout the movie. But it's still fun. But man, at the end, this the, the, this fucking final act of this movie is rad. It's complete mayhem. So like I said, uh, Winslow, he wears this cloak and fucking swan mask. And he has this fucking shiny grill. And he has to talk through a voice box because his fucking throat's all messed up. <laughs> And he talks through a voice box, so he has this crazy fucking voice too. Like, the Phantom is a fucking rad character design. Um, before I get into the final act stuff. Like, just that's a really cool character design. Um, I gotta shout out who did the fucking like oh man, I don't have the IMDB up, so I don't have the costume designer and art director. but shout out to them because um the the set of paradise and the world that they built within it, and then all these distinct character looks were just really cool. Like, I really enjoyed them. Uh, even Swan, his fucking weird ass haircut, he fucking went with the straight hair with bangs. A guy with long straight hair and bangs, like, that's a bold look to rock. And he made it work in his like swarmy way. But, anyways, the third act of this movie, because like, uh, I really like the first act, um, the setup is really cool. The middle is kind of, the pacing is kind of up and down, up and down. But then once we get to the third act, like once uh, once Beef is introduced, like the second act is like kind of wompy. but then Beef comes in and injects charisma and life back into the movie. And uh, he's just a super fun character. Beef is this like foreign rock singer that they pull to be in the show because Swan's always trying to be ahead of the fucking game. And he comes in, and he, um, even after being threatened by the Phantom, he decides to sing in the show anyways. And this, like, opening number, so, like, the, the third act in general has a few numbers, and it's just the show of At Paradise, uh, this foul show that they're putting on. And it is just absolutely electric mayhem going on, and I say that on purpose, because Beef gets, like, shocked for performing, like, fucking Phantom, like, throws in a a neon sign through him, and the fucking, like, weird shit that they did with the frame rate is super fucking funny, um, I really appreciated it, and, um, you know, Beef, he was only in the movie for a little bit, but he made his presence known, um, and made every scene that he was in count, But then that song and then the wedding song itself and then the song going on when just like the whole theater is going absolutely insane and they don't realize that fucking people are dying and shit and getting killed and like Swan is getting his face peeled off and all this shit. It is absolute mayhem while there's still this like song going on and this like fucking rock song is just so I don't even know. Like, in this whole movie, it's like it's De Palma's like weird take on a Jalo film, but then also making a musical. it's it's fucking bonkers. and I didn't love it and maybe because I went into the movie expecting to love it. But I really did enjoy this movie. I'm gonna watch it more, and I'm sure my appreciation for it will grow. Um, but cheers to fucking Brian De Palma for just making. Whatever movies he's wanted to fucking do his entire career. Like he literally is just whatever movie he has wanted to make, he's done. And I think that's really cool. Like I'm pretty like confident, like my trajectory as a film as a filmmaker, like most of my movies are gonna stay in the horror genre for the most part, because that's just most of the ideas that I come up with. But I do, I would love to have, like, a varied filmography, like Brian De Palma does. And, like, he still brings his signature stuff, like, his voyeurism, his just, like, kind of lingering on shots within the world, just, like, kind of building it up. However, since this was early in his career, De Palma wasn't, like, as fucking confident in himself. So, he, this is a shorter movie for a Brian De Palma movie, and it doesn't, like, overstay its welcome like de palma movies can do sometimes but uh but yeah fucking cheers to fucking brian de palma everyone uh rip a joint for brian de palma guys but uh, blunt de palma blunto brian de brian de puffo brian de blunto oh Damn it. I'm kicked up. The bong is kinked up, guys. I don't know what I'm going to do. Oh, wait. I do know what I'm going to do. I came prepared. I got a vape pen with me as well. Shout out to Sticky Vapes. It is a gelato vape pen. Gelato grown by Tradecraft Farms here in Los Angeles. Grown by my girlfriend who will be on the podcast next week. But shout out to my boo. She's like, uh,. She's like the producer of the show, you know? Shout out to my baby for always having everything like stocked up and ready to go. But on to the next movie. Next in chronological year order, we are talking about a classic that, see, I mean, I I skipped Family of the Opera and that's a classic, but if if I skipped this one, I might have gotten yelled at. Next up in chronological year order, released in 1986, we are talking Little Shop of Horrors, directed by Frank Oz, written by Howard Ashman. Howard Ashman took the, he adapted the musical version, he wrote the musical version based off of the 1960s movie directed by Roger Corman, The Little Shop of Horrors, which was not a musical. So he made it into a musical for a stage and then wrote the screenplay for the musical version of the movie. So there are many different versions of Little Shop of Horrors. That's a theme that pops up in a lot of musicals, um, especially like, I mean, not just horror musicals, but just musicals in general, is a lot of the times you take an idea in a musical that can be like adapted across different mediums. And, um, I mean, Family of the Paradise um, is just a film. Um, I'm sure, it. I think it did have a stage version eventually, but it started off as, yeah, but it started off as a movie. And then, so yeah, like I said, this one um, in the 1960s movie was based off of a book. So, this, so Little Shop of Horrors is in every type of medium that there can be which is pretty fascinating to me. So, I hadn't seen this movie in a good um like 12 years or so, like it was like whenever I was in high school because I remember my freshman year of high school our theater because I remember my freshman year of high school, our theater department did a production of Little Shop of Horrors and for a high school production, we did pretty good. Like, the fucking Audrey 2 that we built was pretty solid and, like, was a fucking puppet that worked, you know? And, fucking, the kid that voiced Audrey 2 also did the puppetry. He was doing both. That's pretty fucking hard and rad. And, like, we fucking did that as a high school? Yeah, that was uh, super cool. So, that's the last time I watched the movie. And rewatching it, it's very, very fun. I rewatched it today at the time of recording, September 23rd, and I forgot about the opening crawl at the beginning, the opening crawl text, and it says, on the 23rd of September, I fucking about shit my pants, because I was like, how stoned am I? Am I, like, because I didn't plan it. Like, (laughs) I really need to look at the release dates, like, I mean, because I look at the years. But I rarely look at like the actual dates. But I guess that has nothing to do with this. This was just a fun fact in the movie that I just happened to wa- be watching it on September 23rd. That's fucking wild. So, what I find interesting about Lil Shop of Horrors is I like that it's a musical with a depiction of slums of the ghetto, but not just like in the traditional way that we like, that is portrayed in a lot of movies, like, it's, uh, one, it's a, you know, a white protagonist that lives in the slums and, like, is, like, struggling, which, I mean, especially in the 80s, I felt like that was a little different to do, and there still is, like, a lot of uh, variety as far as, like, ethnicities go in Little Shop of Horrors, like, especially in the, like, first beginning montages where we get, like, the opening song and Down on Skid Row. And we see like what the people of the community of Skid Row look like. It's a very like colorful depiction. I think that's really cool. And um, but yeah, it's just like it, it's depicted in a way that isn't really shown like because like yes, it is depicted as negative and people wanting to get out. And that's what the whole movie is about is about becoming a better per or trying to be a better person, trying to find your purpose, trying to get to a better place than where you are. Just on the way that you do that is, you know, what varies. And this movie has, like, really interesting ideas and depictions of, like, consumerism and of fame and success. Oh, look, a recurring theme within a lot of these movies that we watch, you know, um, because a lot of music stuff, art, I don't know. Like, I don't know why that's, like, such a recurring thing. But I really did enjoy rewatching this movie Rick Moranis is fantastic as Seymour. Um, I haven't seen a bunch of Rick Moranis things, and so I've never gotten, like, the overwhelming love that he gets. I don't know if it's just because he, like, retired from acting and then it made people want him to come back and do stuff, but, I mean, I've only really seen him in this and, like, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and a few other, like, stuff, but I've never been like, wow, fucking Rick Moranis, so... Um, tweet me Rick Moranis things that I should check out that I can, like, see, like, what the deal is. I mean, he's great in this movie, but, like, I don't know, he doesn't, like, blow me away or anything, but he is really good in the role of, uh, Seymour. He's a guy, he, he works at a florist, and he loves strange and unusual plants. He's an orphan that was taken in by the shop owner, and, um, he, you know, is in love with his coworker. Um, but the shop isn't making any money. His coworker has a crazy boyfriend. And he just needs a way out of Skid Row. And a way for Audrey to notice him. And then he stumbles across a strange plant. That got zapped with a beam of light during a eclipse of the sun. I think. Or did the plant get beamed down during the eclipse of the sun? I don't know. One of the two. And then um, Seymour becomes famous because the florist starts to prosper once he brings audrey two into the shop and the, he becomes this like famous fucking botanist and everybody like thinks he's the hottest thing in agriculture and then um audrey falls in love with him but it's because of seymour's dark seeker what is the price of fame well he has to kill people and feed them to this plant and it's um you know <laughs> as far as like I don't know, themes go. He doesn't really have much qualms about killing for his own like selfish gains. And then he really only starts to like feel worse about it, like until it's almost too late. And I mean he just like really went straight into the killing. And then the fact that he fucking kills Mr. Mushnik, the, the shop owner who is basically his dad, and, like, yeah, Mr. Mooshnik is mean to him, but, like, he took him in and gave him a job and all that jazz, and, like, it like, it really didn't tear Seymour up killing Mr. Mooshnik at all. I mean, Mr. Mooshnik was trying to, like, blackmail and, like, take advantage and make money off of Seymour, but at the same time, like, uh, I don't know. It's all kinds of muddy. But we're not here to talk about themes. We're here to talk about music. And the music in Little Shop of Horrors... Not as great as I remember. It is good, but it's like the music in Little Shop of Horrors is very casual since like Seymour doesn't actually sing himself. He kind of talks in rhythm while other people sing around him. I mean, and then when he does sing, his singing is not great. And then like, I don't know, all the memorable songs are mainly in the first act. And then like... A lot of the stuff in the second act I didn't remember. And then, like, I remembered the like drink or give me a drink song towards the end. And, um, and like, I mean, suddenly Seymour pops up a few times, like, throughout the movie. But the the music's not as memorable, even though it does still do what it's supposed to do and it tells the story, but it doesn't exactly add to it. I don't know. Like, because I do feel like Little Shop of Horrors itself could work... Like, this version of it could work as a non-musical. I haven't seen the 1960 version, so I don't really know how close they are. But if you made this version of Little Shop of Horrors into just a regular film, it would kind of be the same. Like, I don't feel like I'd be missing out on too much from the music. The only thing that I'd be missing out on is Ellen Green and her different voices that she does for the movie. Like, obviously, like, Audrey has this, like, whispery voice. And then she, like, and she sings like that a little bit. But then, she, like, when she, like, really starts singing, she goes into, like, her, like, <laughs> like a normal voice. And it's, like, so jarring, like, watching because, like, just of what you've seen of this character already and what she looks like, like as far as like her like hair and makeup goes, cause she like looks like this like little doll and um, yeah, her, that's about the only thing I'd be missing out on though. Like the music itself didn't really do all too much for me, but the movie itself is good. It's funny. It's entertaining. It's got a cute love story. Um, it's got great performances. I mean, okay. Levi Stubbs, Singing as Audrey 2, yeah, we would definitely miss that. He brings a lot of life to that role, like in the how dramatic his voice is. He's he's perfect. So, okay, we would be missing out on that. But you could even still get just somebody with a cool voice to voice Audrey 2, and it doesn't have to be sang. And I think the movie would still be interesting. So, as far as a movie, yeah, it's good. But, like, as a horror musical, I'm like, mm, I mean, it's, yeah, I don't know, it's whatever. I surprisingly don't have too much to talk about with this movie. Oh, shout out to Steve Martin. Like, why didn't Steve Martin do, like, more horror movies in his career? Has he done horror movies in his career? Like, lit- serious horror movies? Because he's absolutely psychotic as the dentist. Like, I remember as a kid being scared of the dentist because of this movie, because I thought all dentists thought this way and were this way. And now watching it, it's like clever. That's like, he was like describing like how he would like kill animals and like hurts people as a kid. And his mom suggested, Oh, you're really good at giving people pain. You should be a dentist. And he like loves that. That's, like, so weird, and then just, like, Steve Martin's performance, like, I mean, he's only in three scenes of the movie, but he fucking steals the show, like, I mean, he steals it so hardcore, but, like, I mean, he is, like, absolutely, like, psychotic in the way that he, like, goes back and forth between his fucking singing and talking and, like, all of his weirdness, like, like, the chaos range is, like, the chaos levels, they're through the roof, through the roof. I absolutely, and it just like made me think because, like, Steve Martin just is known for being the funny guy. He's known for being the guy that everybody loves. But, like, that's when you turn somebody into a bona fide, like, psychopathic killer in a movie. And, like, Steve Martin in his prime in a, like, super brutal horror movie would have been fucking awesome. But,. That's about all I have on the Little Shop of Horrors. It, uh, you know, it, it did, it, it was fun, but and I know it's a classic, so please don't hurt me. But I don't know, just didn't do it for me as much. So that's all I really got for that. Hulk! You know what did do it for me though? Fucking Repo, the Genetic Opera. Released in 2008. Directed by Darren Lynn Bozeman. You might know that name for his contributions to the Saw franchise. He's done like, I don't know, four of them. I think he's directed four, five, six, and 3D. Or some shit like that. Um, Truth be told, the ones I don't really enjoy all that much. I mean, those are the ones that a lot of people don't really enjoy that much. But, the best thing that Bozeman did give us was Repo, the genetic opera. So, this movie is fucking this is a horror musical like uh, out of any of the movies that we've talked about this month besides maybe Sweeney Todd but even Sweeney Todd is a lot of drama this movie is a horror musical through and through the most horror musical of any of the movies we've talked about so as I talked about just a minute ago with, like, musicals being, like, kind of spread across different mediums, Repo, the genetic opera, is also kind of interesting in that aspect. So, it was originally written by Darren Smith and Terrence Dunich, who also uh, plays the grave robber in the film. They wrote this back in the 80s, okay? So, they wrote this, and then it eventually became a stage show. And then... um. And then Darren Lynn Bozeman made it into a 10-minute short film, so that way he could sell it to make it into a full-length feature film. So, it's kind of crazy that it took almost, it took like 25 years for it to become a movie from its inception as an idea. But it did have, and over the years, like whenever it did eventually get adapted to stage, it has went through a bunch of different changes like as far as like the songs they've changed like the store a lot of the story elements and it's really kind of been this like a living piece of writing and i find that really interesting cuz i mean whenever people do stage plays and musicals like people certain actors will like originate a character but then like when another character comes on they might like add something to it uh some sort of like different personality or something like that things like that tend to change or Or also like, I don't know, like set design type things or maybe updating certain story elements for like the time. But they rarely kind of, the music is usually kind of set in stone and everything kind of changes around that. But even the music here has had changes because there is so much fucking music in this movie. I read somewhere, I don't remember where, so don't quote me on this. I don't have a source anymore because I couldn't find it again. But I read somewhere that this movie had like a record for like the most musical numbers. I don't know if that was for musical numbers in the stage play or musical numbers in the movie, but either way I believe it because I mean everything about this flows through the music and that's what I love about um about musicals and I guess why I find like the adaptation across media is interesting because again I'm someone that is interested in storytelling no matter what that medium is or the way that the storytelling is portrayed so I find any time you can come up with interesting ways to tell stories that is going to stand out to me more so maybe that's why I gravitate towards musicals sometimes is because when you have a good musical that not only the music is good and entertaining, but the music is what drives the story, it tells the story, then that's great to me. Like and that is like a big box to check off as far as musicals go. As far as this movie as a horror musical, it's even better that way because it's this very dark, dingy, like very like toxic but like void of hope kind of society now in this like future world and everyone's addicted to uh surgeries and there was like an organ failure epidemic that like caused people to do that and then it also made people get addicted to this drug because then they needed that drug to fucking deal with the pain to cope which is a commentary on the opioid crisis going on to this day this movie plays with a lot of really big ideas as far as like consumerism and materialism And, um, you know, like controlling people through product and through like fucking, um, being able to show people what they want, you know, but like really doing something else. And it's, um, it's a very interesting movie. They have so many characters in this movie from the grave robber who kind of serves as like a narrator of sorts, um, kind of singing some of the other songs that explain the stuff going on in this world And then you also have, so then you have Shiloh, who is, like, the 17-year-old protagonist who she wants to, like, go out into the world, even though the world is fucking batshit crazy, and because of, like, all the medical shit, Um, her dad tells her that she's sick, and that's the reason she can't go out, but that just makes her want to go out, and, of course, um, her dad, Nathan, played by Anthony Stewart Head, who plays Giles on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, He's absolutely fantastic as Shiloh's father and also um, the Repo Man, who is this, like... He has this, like, split personality of being, like, the calm, warm father that he, like, tries to really take care of Shiloh. And he's overprotective and wants to look out for her. And he's a doctor, and so he, like, knows these things and how to take care of her. But then at the same time, he has this, like, crazy, bloodlust side of him that he enjoys being the Repo Man and, like, fucking taking people's organs because it's something he's good at and he enjoys it and also because he owes Roddy Largo who is like the antagonist of the film he owns Jinko which is like the company that leases out organs and body parts and like all the shit and they also make accessories and promote the surgeries and all this stuff they he runs this fucking world and so he um forces Nathan to work for him as the repo man even though um Roddy is the guy that killed Nathan's wife who is Shiloh's mom Shiloh's mom's best friend blind Mag who is a fucking babe played by Sarah Brightman oh my goodness what a babe she is Shiloh's godmother and she is like this blind singer who is the fucking face of Co. And she is own, and she has fucking eyes, but that were given to her by fucking Jinko. Roddy is a fucking bastard, him and his whole fucking family. I would say the fan favorites of the movie, as far as characters go, would be the Largo children, um Roddy's sick and deranged children. Luigi, played by Bill Moseley, horror icon, who has made an appearance in House of a Thousand Corpses here on Bloody Blunt Cinema Club. You have Paris Hilton as Amber Sweet, who, um, uh, Paris Hilton, I mean, she's famous for other reasons, hasn't really done too much movies. But, I mean, between this and House of Wax, Paris Hilton needs to be in more horror movies. Like, she she just fits in the genre. Her weird style of acting <laughs> Uh, works really well for her role in this. So yeah, Bill Moseley plays Luigi. He's like the oldest and he's like just like fucking crazy. Just like yells at everybody. Luigi has some of the best lines in the movie. There's this one part where he wants somebody to bring him some coffee and one of the genterns says decaf and he just explodes and goes, I will fucking kill you! And I was like, that's a fucking mood right there. Like, somebody tries to offer me the devil's water? Decaf? Are you kidding me? Get that shit out of my face. I'm there with you, Luigi. And then Amber Sweet, she is the only daughter, and she's obsessed with surgery. She is addicted to um the Zydrate, which is the drug that controls everybody. She's like addicted to it. She hooks up with the grave robber in exchange for Zydrate. And then she wants all the kids, they want to be um the heir to the Gene Co. company but of course, Roddy hates them all, so he doesn't want to give it to any of them, um, so she, she, um, is, like, jealous of, like, Blind Mag, um, because, like, she wants to be the fucking, or Madge, because it's short for Margaret Mag, no, Mag, Blind Mag, I don't know, I wasn't really paying attention when they said her name, (laughs) but, um, she wanted to be, like, the face of the fucking company. That's why she's so obsessed with gang-like plastic surgery as well. And that's why she needs the drug so much. And then there is also Pavi, who is the fucking, like, eccentric child amongst them. He um, has a badly scarred face, so he always has other people's faces pinned to his face. Eventually, he wears his sister's face at the end. It's, um, I don't know family thing, I guess, and, but he's a fucking weirdo, he's literally so obsessed with himself, he carries around a mirror to look at himself, and I think that is really fucking funny, and, um, he has just a, he, he, like, talks in this weird Italian accent, and he is, um, just very, very, very interesting, um, the, the three Largo kids are just, like, uber entertaining anytime they're on screen, and they, like, have weird dynamics between them, Um, but I mean, the music is of course what you come here for and the music, there's a lot of it, but a lot of it is like really good. Like there, there's a good mix of music in here between music that moves the story along and does all those things for you because you basically get the story either through the music or you get it through these like comic book, like flashbacks, but even some of the comic book animated scenes have music to them as well. So, but then there's also songs that like they do are for the story, but then it has songs that like, hey, I would just listen to this in like everyday life. It doesn't even have to be like included in with the soundtrack. Like I would just listen to this. It's, um, there's a lot of really great songs in this. Um, some of my favorites would be 21st Century Cure is a really good one. It, um, kind of, it's towards the beginning and just like kind of sets up a lot of stuff within the world. It is with Grave Robber and Shiloh and it's uh, it's just a really fun performance. I enjoy it. You get some good imagery as they like go into this warehouse of dead bodies, which is like where you extract the Zydrate from. And there's like just some really great imagery there. And it's just really funny that the Grave Robber like keeps yelling graves whenever they're like trying to hide from the fucking police people or whatever. Um and it's a good introduction to Shiloh and her character as well. And then there's Zydrate Anatomy is another favorite that's with Shiloh, the grave robber, and Amber. And it's, like, the grave robber explaining, like, Zydrate and how it works and this, like, trickle-down effect that it has, like, throughout um, this whole society now. And it's just, uh, it's very fun in the way that it explains everything and it um like in the delivery of it too the the songs in this have like very interesting they're very interestingly written so i don't have any music out yet but i'm working on some stuff i've been working on some stuff in the studio and we'll have music out soon but i really do enjoy songwriting it's like this like it feels like this like weird puzzle and i enjoy like coming up with like different ways to write lines and rhyme sequences and stuff like that and I'm gonna start studying the movie, or and I'm gonna start studying the music in this movie a little bit because it they come up with such interesting ways to like keep the music fresh because there are so many songs. So they come up with like interesting ways on how they deliver it and how they write certain songs. And uh, Zydre Anatomy is just like a really great showcase of that. I'd say it's probably the best song in in the movie um chase the morning is also a really good one as well um that is like a duet between shiloh and blind mag and that's really fun um the music just overall like there's so much of it but i never dislike it when the music is on and um circling back around to um like this story being across different medias and stuff there is a, another movie called Repo Men that it's not based off of Repo the Genetic Opera. It's actually based off of a different book that follows basically like the same idea of Repo the Genetic Opera, as in people need organs from the government, but then when they can't pay it, they get repoed. So, if you, so I mean, Repo the Genetic Opera explores like all the the industry stuff and the commercialism of it more and stuff like that versus repo men explores like the morality of it. And it follows the repo men that do this. And it is a fantastic film. I might cover it on the podcast because I think it's super underrated. And people, when they think of this movie, they associate it with the repo, the genetic opera repo, the genetic opera is not super popular. I mean, it's a cult movie now, but it's not popular, um, like it wasn't like very critically well-received. So I feel like when people heard Repo Men, they just kind of associated it with this. And then just a lot of people didn't see Repo Men. It's a very good movie and like an, a really fun alternative take on this story. So if you watch Repo the Genetic Opera and you're into the ideas but aren't into the music aspect of it, I would highly recommend watching Repo Men. That would probably be more your style. But um, this was only the second time I had seen this movie. It was really fun rewatching it. You have Alex Vega of Spy Kids fame playing Shiloh here. And then you have Paul Sorvino playing Roddy, playing the antagonist here. Paul Sorvino is, uh, you know, kind of a legend. He played Pauly in Goodfellas. Fantastic actor. And then the fact that Bozeman got him to do this movie is interesting to me. Um, it's, this is a really cool movie if this is your niche. If you like cyberpunk goth bullshit and you like fucking industrial rock music infused in that. And then if you want to see some gory horror elements as well. Because there's there's some body horror elements throughout here. Damn, I haven't done the genre grinder for any of these movies because I've been just kind of trying to fly through them. But, um, but yeah, of course there's body horror in this movie as well. So if you haven't seen Repo the Genetic Opera and you think it might be your thing, it will probably be your thing. So I highly recommend checking out Repo the Genetic Opera. Oh! Like, I can't really make the noise of the vaporizer on the mic. You can't really hear it as well. You can still hear that. So, going into the last movie. Last but not least. It just happened this way in the year that it was released. Is Stage Fright, which came out in 2014. This was a first time watch for me. But I had heard this movie. A couple people on Twitter mentioned it to me. Whenever I announced that I was doing a Horror Musicals Month. And Stage Fright is a fun one. It is on Tubi for free right now. So if you haven't seen this movie, um, because you probably haven't heard of it, it's it's a very small movie. Didn't really have it. Didn't have the best reviews, but it is another one of those movies that has developed this cult following just because of its like very specific portrayal of theater kids, and the accuracy of it, and like the and the the world of theater and producers and actors and, like, kind of the way that these people think. Um, I mean, yeah, it is kind of like a generalization, but it's, like, very much poking fun at those stereotypes, but it does it in a very entertaining way. This movie was written and directed by Jerome Sable in his directorial debut, which I do find that very admirable, like trying to make your first movie a horror musical slasher, That is, I mean, that's pretty bold to do on your very first film out the gate. But if there's any way to like slap your dick out on the table and be like, this is me, this is my fucking work, I mean, it's by doing this. So I do applaud him big time. So, we wrote and direct this, right? So, the movie follows these twins who, at the beginning of the movie, their mom is an actress, and she's about to debut this new musical, The Haunting of the Opera, which is obviously a reference to Phantom of the Opera. So, there you go. I didn't cover Phantom of the Opera, but I covered a knockoff version of it. So, win-win, maybe? I don't know. So So, anyways, at the beginning of the movie, the mom is killed. She's stabbed to death by the slasher. The kids, the twins, are then sent to live with um, the mom's good friend and producer, Mr. McCall, played by fucking Meatloaf. Meatloaf making two appearances in the same month on the Bloody Blunt Cinema Club podcast. Interesting, because I actually just learned that that was Meatloaf. I didn't recognize him. I guess it was because he was wearing this funky mustache. So I actually didn't fucking recognize him in this movie. Um, You also have Minnie Driver makes a cameo at the beginning of the movie as the mom. So, she is there as well. But, holy shit, yeah. I actually did not realize that that was meatloaf. That's so funny. But anyways, the twins, um, they grow up and it's like, I don't know, like 10 years later and they are cooks at a camp ran by Mr. McCall, by Roger. And... So, he is their guardian, and he also works for them, which is kind of shitty, because he also, like, won't let them participate in camp things, but he runs this camp for theater kids where they can go and be themselves, and there's this fucking opening number that is just, like, it is, like, the theater kid anthem, and it's just, like, so funny, and it's, like, talking about, like, you know, why, and it, like, talks about, like, how they can be themselves and, like, how people are mean to them and, like, don't let them do their thing because they're theater kids. And it's, like, there's this one kid that talks about getting beat and stuff and then they're, like, oh, man, that bully. And then he goes, no, that was by my dad. And then there's, like, one guy that just, like, announces... Or there's a guy that announces that he's not gay, but he's gay because he likes musicals. And then there's another guy goes, well, I'm gay because I'm gay. And... Um, all the, all the play with the stereotypes within the film is super funny. Like, it's, it's very funny. Um, I mean, people might get upset by like some of the generalizations, especially by the queer characters in the film, because of course there's the gay stage manager and he's like very, I don't know, prototypical gay, I suppose. But he's also very funny and has uh, some very funny sequences within the film. And then the guy that says he's not gay, of course he turns out to be gay, But then, I don't know if that's just, like... Because at first, at the beginning, I thought it was, like, kind of clever. Because it's like, oh, hey, not every guy that likes musicals and theaters is gay. But then, at the end of the movie, he turns out to be gay. So, I mean, that's, like, maybe one stereotype that doesn't work out as well. But then, when you have, like, the... You have, like, the goth costume designer. And then you have the fucking egotistical director. Which... So they have a director who comes into the camp because he wants to put on a spotlight show for the camp. The camp is losing money, so they want to put on this like spotlight show and bring a bunch of people and get it financed and all that jazz, so they want to do The Haunting of the Opera, which is the play that... So, of course, the daughter, Cam, Camilla, played by Allie McDonald, she um, wants to play the role that her mother played because she wants to feel close to her, she misses her. And then her brother, Douglas Smith um, of the Bye Bye Man fame, oof, he actually, like, is good in this, it's super funny, um, oh, but he doesn't do the singing, I was about to say his singing was really good, but he actually doesn't do a singing, someone else does the singing, um, for Buddy, but anyway, so it's like, she, she, of course, gets the role, but then the director is creepy and he has like two girls. They wants to play the main role. So it's like he's like being a creeper to both of them. And like, again, this like kind of stuff does happen in the theater world. But the fact that they did it with like, I don't know, this like young camp and it takes place with like kids and like, I'm pretty sure like their Cam is a teenager and then the guy that plays um, Artie, the, the director I get I get the impression he's an adult because like he's treated as like some famous guy coming into um direct the play. So I don't know, I found that kind of weird. I thought, I don't know, I feel like even though they were trying to play on the theater kid stuff for laughs, the movie would have just like could have been a little bit more mature and maybe they could have made into the more horror elements if they did it with just an adult cast however it works because again the theater kid stuff is really funny in this and so of course they're doing this musical and someone is killing people at the camp because of it and I like that the movie does a pretty good job with the mystery even though I did figure it out in the first like 15 minutes I actually made a note of it that I go Oh, I bet the killer is going to be Buddy, which is the brother. And, of course, I was right, but the mystery is fun, in they do all these like red herrings um, with the creepy janitor, and, um, of course, you think it's Roger. And then you find out, of course, Roger was the one that killed the mom at the beginning of the movie. Um, did I forget to do spoiler alerts at the beginning of the podcast? I think I did. Oh, well, sorry. Um, I spoil every movie I talk about on this podcast, even though I'm kind of, like, describing this movie to you as a recommendation, because I know it's a hidden gem. However, I just can't help myself when it comes to the spoiling, so it's kind of happened already. Sorry about that. But anyways, there's a mystery to who the killer is, um, and the killer, like, very much hates theater, and he's, like... Just like he hates theater and the the theater kids and like the way that they are and stuff and blah, blah, blah. And like he is like a screamo like metal singer while everyone else like sings like musical style. And I think that's super funny. And I don't know if that's maybe a shout out to um, Meatloaf playing Eddie. Because then there is a scene where towards the end the killer is going around killing a bunch of people and doing his thing, right? and he's singing a song before he kills Roger and while he's singing the song he u- he whips out a guitar and starts playing guitar and he uses a knife as a capo while he's playing guitar the killer i mean if that doesn't scream horror or musical i don't know what does but it works out pretty fantastic the the music part itself though um could have been better the music is good when it's funny but as far as like quality music goes like i wouldn't listen to this soundtrack without watching the movie cuz one a lot of the singers aren't that great even cam the lead she is she's good sometimes but then sometimes she's not um the the singing voice of the killer uh rick miller he is good for what he's doing, but it's not like good singing. Nobody in this movie really is a good singer except for Liz Silver, um, a side character. No one else is really a good singer in this movie. So it's like the music does progress the story. And it's funny because this is a horror comedy. But is it good like just music? Eh, like like I said, I am not gonna listen to this in my free time. Um, will I watch this movie again? Probably. I thought it was like kind of funny, and I have a lot of uh, theater friends that I think would really appreciate this movie. But but am I listening to it in my free time? Probably not. Like I don't even want to go through like what my favorite songs are because I don't really have a favorite song from this movie except for like that opening song introducing all the characters and the setting. Um, overall though, it's a fun movie, it's entertaining, I enjoy the slasher elements of it, it is very violent, I'll say that, for the quirky tone of it, you don't expect it to be as violent as it is, especially because it does heavily feature kids and shit, and no kids get killed, unfortunately, it is all like adults that get killed at this kids camp, how convenient. You guys know me. You know I love it when horror movies kill them children. Fuck them kids. But um but this movie is very brutal and violent. It has some pretty bloody fun kills. Like the opening kill, the mom gets stabbed in the throat, like but like through her mouth. Like just like that's like a very awkward stab, but it looks so painful and they shot it really well too. There's there's some really great kills in this. Um, even though Repo is like the most horror-esque and it definitely has the most blood and stuff, um, the best kills goes to Stage Fright because it had uh, some very fun kills in it that I really enjoyed. So overall, I would definitely recommend checking it out if you haven't seen it. Um, but let me know what you guys think about Stage Fright. Apparently, it is. It's uh. It only came out in 2014, but it is quickly developing a little bit of a cult audience. What is it with musicals gaining cult followings? Like, is it because musicals are so niche, and there is just like a strong group of that? Because I, I mean, I'd say it, I don't want to say the majority, but maybe the majority of people don't enjoy horror musicals. But then they eventually find their audience. But then it's like, okay, but where is that audience at when these movies first come out? And then they don't support them, you know, and help these movies make money. Where are the audience at then? But then they will find something later on and then, like, pass it along. And then it gains its popularity. I don't know. I don't know what what that says or what the correlation is. But I think that'll pretty much wrap it up for the movie talk of this episode I'm actually surprised that this episode was not longer talking about four different movies I mean shit guys, in four episodes so far, we've talked a lot of horror musicals and when you watch a lot of horror musicals it kind of fries your brain a little bit so um, I'm excited to get to October um, to talk some Halloween movies and then we're going to talk some found footage movies after that But we do still have one more week, one more movie to talk about as we dance in September for Horror Musicals Month here on Bloody Blunt Cinema Club. The release schedule for this month did get a little bit wonky, and I dropped last week's episode on a Friday, and then this episode dropped on a Friday, but the next episode will be on Tuesday like usual make sure you are following the podcast pages on Instagram and Twitter to be updated for changes of that nature. But gonna go ahead and do it for this week's episode of the Blay Blunt Cinema Club. New episodes every Tuesday. Next episode, my girlfriend Brittany will be on the show, and we are talking Climax, which has no singing in it whatsoever. Make sure you are following me on Twitter and Instagram at underscore Daddy Disco. And until next time, guys, stay lifted.